We are back. We were somewhat frivolous, I think it's fair to say, in our first segment, so we probably should tighten up a little bit and be more serious at this point. And if we're going to do that, there's not much more serious going on than the war in Gaza, a war that's being billed as a war between Israel and Hamas. But it's pretty clear from the footage that uh, we've seen about blowing up entire blocks of buildings and hospitals and uh, everybody's homes and killing lots of people that this is not just Hamas on the receiving end of all this, which was something that certainly could have been predicted. Bashi on MSNBC noted that Hamas's massacre of more than 1,400 Israelis shocked the world, but added that war crimes by one party do not justify war crimes by another. International law prohibits the collective punishment of civilian populations. Yet, Israel is relentlessly pummeling the densely populated Gaza Strip with airstrikes and artillery, killing more than 3,000 Palestinians, many of them children, and wounding at least 1,200 others. Now, I should say, this was written two weeks ago. The numbers are much higher now. As a result of Israel calls its, quote, complete siege, unquote, of Gaza, the Hamas-run territory's 2 million residents are running out of food, water, medicines, and diesel that hospitals need to run their generators. Again, keep in mind, this was a couple of weeks back. Current satellite photos of, of the Gaza Strip show that the lights are pretty much out in the whole region. And again, th- there's no way anybody can condone what Hamas did in attacking Israeli citizens and killing lots of innocents. But again, two wrongs do not make a right. And what's happening right now is just, it's, it's brutal and it's an overreaction. And there seems to be no apology from the Israeli government of how it's conducting business. People in America are calling for a ceasefire and apparently divided along political lines. Anyone that says, why don't we have a ceasefire and allow some humanitarian aid in is being considered some sort of, uh, I don't know, communist or or someone who's anti-American or anti-Israeli, anti-Semitic, I don't know. Writing in Jewish Currents, Raz Segel said, if the Israeli military is pursuing a military objective with maximal restraint, well, the question is asked, why are Israel's leaders speaking the language of genocide? Announcing the cruel blockade of supplies to Gaza, Defense Minister Yav Galano said we are, quote, fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly. Israeli President Isaac Herzog said the entire nation of Gaza is to blame for October 7th. Other members of Israel's parliament are explicitly calling for a mass expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza and for doomsday weapons to be used on Gaza. Apparently, the minister who suggested that they nuke Gaza City got in trouble by his fellow government members in Israel, not because he suggested nuking Gaza, but because in doing so, he gave away the fact that Israel actually has atomic weapons, which they've never admitted to. Writing in the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof asked if it was even possible to wipe out Hamas through military action. Or has Israel turned Gaza, already one of the poorest places on earth, into a living hell in an understandable but illegal act of revenge. Now, in the past couple of weeks, there are some members of the Israeli government that have called for the Gazans to leave, just just to leave. Yeah, pack up and leave. But of course, there is no place for them to go. It's a terrible situation. I don't think I can say much more about it at this point, but I would add that to criticize the actions of the Israeli government 
should not be equated with anti-Semitism. And a lot of people are trying to frame it that way, and that's just not the case. I mean, how can you not criticize members of the Israeli, Israeli government, in this case, Heritage Minister Amichai Eliyahu of the Jewish Power Party, who made the comments to a local radio station that, and I've got the quote now in front of me, the dropping a nuclear bomb on Gaza was one option, to which he added, there's no such thing as innocence in Gaza. After he was vocally criticized, Eliyahu responded that he was speaking in a metaphor. Anyway, I think we'd, we'd better move on. I've got an obituary in front of me that, uh, that I wanted to talk about last September when it appeared in the news, and I don't think we did so, Mr. McMillan, so let's, or if we did, let's do it again, because it's worth, uh, worth talking about. The, the obituary is that of James Buckley. And yes, his brother was William F. of National Review. Back in 1970, James Buckley pulled off one of the great upsets in the U.S. Senate history, running at that time he was both a third-party candidate and a staunch conservative in liberal New York State. He was driven to run by his unease at what he called, quote, the rejection of traditional standards, unquote, in the fractious Vietnam War era. But the vote got split between a Democrat and liberal Republican, and Buckley eked out a win as a member of the conservative party. He was perhaps best known for serving as plaintiff in a landmark 1976 lawsuit challenging campaign spending limits. In Buckley versus Vallejo, the Supreme Court backed his view that campaign spending was political speech protected by the First Amendment. And that laid the groundwork for the notorious 2010 ruling Citizens United versus FEC, which struck down caps on corporate political contributions. Such limits, Buckley said, squeeze out the ability of challengers to come in and confront the political establishment, to which we would add, and also <laughs> retain control by the political establishment. Well, luckily for the U.S. Senate and perhaps all of us, uh, Buckley was a one-term senator. He left office in 1976. But during his single term, he pushed for a constitutional ban on abortion. Nice. And also opposed the Equal Rights Amendment. In 1976, he got thumped pretty good by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, but later served as Undersecretary of State under Ronald Reagan in 1981 and then as President of Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty before appointed, being appointed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in 1985, where he served for 15 years. In retirement, he noted that he regretted the country's turn toward progressivism. In 2016, he said, We grew up knowing American history. If the millennials don't know what socialism means, and they have to be taught all over again, there's reason to worry. Well, to which I would add, yeah, well, he's dead now. And here's some very curious news. Yours truly has taken a position on this program that a lot of this mouthing off about how we're going to resolve the, uh, the, the homeless situation and the, the too high price of housing by building like crazy is, I think, well, to some extent, propaganda by the uh, real estate and building industry. We're often told that if we build more lanes on the freeway, it'll ease congestion of traffic. But have you ever seen that happen? I haven't. Well, maybe in the immediate short term, once you have a brand spanking new highway that carries more cars here and there, well, doesn't it always seem they develop the land next to it? Anyway, I digress. I'm pleased to note that the real estate industry has, well, what might turn out to be a black eye delivered by a court in Missouri of late. 
noted the Wall Street Journal, a federal court verdict has sent seismic waves through the real estate industry. A jury in Missouri found that a central part of the real estate business model, which is sellers paying not only their agent's commission, but the buyer's agent too, was illegal. The verdict against the National Association of Realtors and two brokerages found $1.8 billion in damages from an illegal conspiracy in Missouri alone. The likely effect is that buyers will soon have to pay their own agents and buyers' agents will have to get competitive to maintain relevance when technology now enables buyers to find listings and research the market themselves. One industry analyst predicted that this case, as well as a second class action suit against the National Association of Realtors could lead to a 30% reduction in the $100 billion that Americans pay in real estate commissions every year. And it might push well over half the 1.6 million agents out of the industry. Weighing in on this, the Chicago Tribune noted that most people today start their home search online. They peruse Zillow or Realtor.com and either wait for an open house or call up the listing agent and ask to see the home. In most countries, the agent would handle the showing and the sale, and the seller would pay a reasonable commission of 1% to 1.5%, which on a $750,000 home would amount to about ten grand. In the U.S., that same seller would be on the hook for somewhere between thirty-seven dollars and $45,000. Said the Tribune, it's an absurd procedure that deserves to go down in flames. Real estate agencies argue that inexperienced buyers need their own agents, but the problem with this cleverly self-serving and widely misunderstood system is that it leaves you no choice. Even The Economist, a rather conservative uh, publication, uh, is, is on board with this. Of course, they are a British conservative business publication. Their commentary on this was that death taxes, and extortionate realtors' fees. For decades, these have been the three grim certainties of American life, and one of them is avoidable. Every time a home changes hands, realtors, known as estate agents in Britain, charge a staggering 5 to 6% of its value, two or three times more than they can get away with in any other rich country. As the internet has allowed would-be buyers to browse properties from a sofa, agents' fees have tumbled elsewhere but not in America, where they have been set in concrete for nearly a century. Anyway, they note that the judge in Missouri has yet to rule on specific anti-competitive practices that might be banned in light of the jury's finding, but he could set standards nationwide. Commissions could be unbundled with buyers and sellers each paying their own agent as early as next year. Wouldn't that be interesting? The Economist notes that the benefits of encouraging more competition would be huge. Obscene commissions gamble up families' nest eggs, In 2019, a paper from the Brookings Institution, which is a think tank, found that realtor fees consumed a quarter of the capital gains which were earned in an average home sale. We're going to watch and see what happens there. And a subject I want to talk about, but I need to do some research on so I'm better educated, is what the hell's going on with Venezuela? As you may or may not know, apparently hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans have fled their country's economic chaos first to Colombia and sometimes all the way up uh, Central America into the United States. We, we have hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans here. And that is because Nicolas Maduro, who inherited the presidency of the country from Hugo Chavez, has been rather dictatorial and, um, shall we say, controlling 
of how the economy is run in that country. The odd thing is that Venezuela is often cited as having the largest proven oil reserves in the world. But I guess when oil prices fell a decade or so ago, uh, the party seemed to have been over for Hugo and Nicolas. But at this point in time, the U.S. has decided to lift sanctions against Venezuela. And apparently the oil men are back in business down there. Now, if this can get the economy jump-started, perhaps a lot of Venezuelans will be able to return home and the economy will return to normal. But um, we'll just have to see. I had a meeting last week with uh, the, the proprietor of one of my favorite sandwich shops in Sacramento. And God love him. He brought me um, up to speed in a couple of issues. I had um, not noticed the pronouncements of Donald J. Trump on uh, Veterans Day. But uh, some of the things that Trump said were pointed out to me, and I, I, was, I, I was alarmed. And considering how, I guess you'd say, used to it we are at this point by the, the garbage that comes out of the mouth of that man, uh, well, this took some doing. But he managed. Now, I think the press sort of downplayed what was said. Well, I, I think they just don't want to feed oxygen to this guy. But doggone it, here's summaries that come out of the Washington Post and New York Times. The Times noted that in his nearly two-hour Veterans Day address in Claremont, New Hampshire, Trump promised to take care of America's veterans, reviving a hyperbolic claim that he made throughout his 2016 campaign. The Democrats, quote, treat the illegal aliens just pouring into our country better than they treat our veterans, unquote. And he said he would divert money currently earmarked, quote, for the shelter and transport of illegal aliens, unquote, to instead provide shelter and treatment for homeless military veterans. During a speech, Trump called for executing drug dealers, he praised China for making drug trafficking a capital offense. And in New Hampshire, where the opioid crisis has hit particularly hard, which we would hasten to add from Chinese fentanyl, he turned to an informal straw poll to strengthen his case. Let's have a vote, Trump said to the crowd. Who'd be in favor of the death penalty? Majority of the crowd raised their hands. Fewer hands went up when Trump asked who would oppose such a move. When one woman raised her hand emphatically, Trump looked at her with a small smile and said, Are you a liberal? The woman apparently wildly shook her head to the contrary. The Times reports that Trump repeated lies, falsehoods, exaggerations, and half-truths that he's told routinely on a number of subjects, including gas prices, U.S. energy, independence, election fraud, and the 2020 elections. Said Trump, I'm a very proud election denier. The Times notes that he almost got through his speech without referring to Ron DeSantis of Florida and how he apparently reportedly, at least allegedly by Vivek Ramaswamy, wearing, who alleged that, that DeSantis wears heel lifts in his cowboy boots. Trump couldn't resist uh, telling the crowd, I'm not wearing lifts either, by the way. I don't have six-inch heels. Apparently, he then did a clownish impression of DeSantis walking off the stage at the debate that looked, according to the Times, like it was ripped from Monty Python's Ministry of Silly Walks skit. Trump joked, I thought he was wearing ice skates. The Times also reported on some truly alarming things he had to say, and I think for that we're going to switch over to the Washington Post that really delved into it. Piece by Marianne Levine noted that former President Trump denigrated his domestic opponents and critics during a speech, calling those on the other side of the idol as vermin and suggesting that they pose a greater risk to the U.S. than countries like Russia, China, or North Korea. Language that's 
drew a rebuke from historians. Said Trump, We pledge to you that we'll root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs who live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections. To which he added, They'll do anything, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and to destroy the American dream. He went on to further state, The threat from outsized forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. Our threat is from within. Because if you have a capable, competent, smart, tough leader, China, Russia, North Korea, they're not going to want to play with us. Notes the Post, the former president's speech, echoed his message of vengeance and grievance as he called himself a very proud election denier and decried his legal entanglements, once again attacking the judge in New York's civil trial and re-upping his attacks on special counsel Jack Smith. In the speech, Trump once again portrayed himself as the victim of a political system that is out to get him and his supporters. But it was Trump's use of the word vermin, both in his speech and in a post on his Truth Social site, that drew particular backlash. Timothy Naftali, senior researcher at Columbia University, said the language is a language that dictators use to install fear. When you dehumanize an opponent, you strip them of their constitutional right to participate securely in a democracy because you're saying they're not human. That's what dictators do. Ruth Ben Jot, a historian at NYU, sent an email to the Post that calling people vermin was used effectively by Hitler and Mussolini to dehumanize people and encourage their followers to engage in violence. On the other hand, Stephen Cheng, Trump campaign spokesman, told the Post, those who try to make that ridiculous assertion are clearly snowflakes, grasping for anything because they are suffering from Trump derangement syndrome, and their entire existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. Let me run that one past you again, said Chang. Their entire existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. Now, Chung later clarified that he he meant to say their sad, miserable existence instead of their entire existence. Yes, it's so much nicer to say their sad, miserable existence will be crushed when Donald Trump returns to the White House. Trump also received widespread criticism and condemnation recently from groups such as the Anti-Defamation League for saying in an interview that undocumented immigrants were, quote, poisoning the blood of our country, unquote. Domingo Garcia, president of the League of United Latin American Citizens, which is the oldest Hispanic civil rights group in the country, said at the time that Trump's comments about blood indicate his language is getting more extreme, comparing it to Nazi propaganda about the Jewish people. Trump's divisive rhetoric comes as he remains the clear polling leader in the dwindling GOP primary field, and as he and his allies have already started to plot ways for the federal government to punish his critics and opponents should he win back the White House next November. The Post recently reported that Trump, who faces 91 charges across four criminal cases, is naming the people he wants to investigate and prosecute, and his associates are drafting plans to potentially invoke the Insurrection Act on his first day in office, which would allow him to deploy the military in response to civil demonstrations. Notes the Post, in addition to attacking the radical left, he also spent part of his New Hampshire speech lashing out at a New York judge overseeing his civil fraud case, calling New York Attorney General Letitia James a disaster and reiterating his description of 
Jack Smith as deranged. Smith has brought two indictments against Trump, one in a case charging Trump with illegally hoarding classified documents, and the other alleging he sought to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power by seeking to overturn the results of the 2020 election, leading to the January 6th attack. Gee, you think? Said Trump about Smith in the speech. The Trump-hating prosecutor in this case, his wife and family, despise me much more than he does. And I think he's about a 10. They're about a 15 on a scale of 10. He's a disgrace to America. Now, if we haven't got you scared yet, hang on. Something like 15 years ago, we had author Chris Hedges on this program to talk about the rise of fascism in America. And we thought at the time that that might be a little overheated in the rhetoric department. But boy, we don't think that anymore. Sometime in October, we talked about uh, the call from the right for a red Caesar. And this time we looked at that again. Will Bunch writing in the Philadelphia Inquirer said our democracy's downward spiral could accelerate, which would delight a small but influential gaggle of far right thought leaders. Supposed intellectuals at Hillsdale College and the Claremont Institute see the spreading rot as proof of the need for a red Caesar, an authoritarian who will suspend democracy, root out the liberal deep state and impose order that a growing number of conservative academics and billionaire donors are embracing an explicit plea for dictatorship is deeply alarming, especially because we all know who the actual Red Caesar is, even if he is technically orange. Doyle McManus writing in the LA Times said, if you think that's hyperbole, you're not paying attention. Trump has laid out a terrifying authoritarian vision for a second term. He's promised to prosecute political opponents send the National Guard into high-crime areas, and purge the federal civil service of anyone who questions his views. Writing in The Guardian, Margaret Sullivan noted that meanwhile his rhetoric has grown increasingly violent. He's called for shooting shoplifters, suggesting that former Joint Chief of Staff Chairman General Mark Miley should be executed, and exhorted followers to go after New York Attorney General Letitia James for filing a fraud case against him. Many shrug off such words as Trump being Trump, but voters must understand exactly what he'll do if he wins in 2024, which is throw out American democracy and move to something none of us should want. Writing this week in The Guardian, Marcy Hamilton said Christian nationalists are gaining control over the Republican Party, and they're waging a holy war to return the government into a theocracy. In electing Representative Mike Johnson as House Speaker, the GOP has elevated a fundamentalist who has said, we don't live in a democracy, but rather a biblical republic. Last year, Johnson referred to his work in Congress as a spiritual battle for the survival of our country. In this crusade, Johnson will enjoy the powerful and political and financial support of a legion of true believers like the Federalist Society architect Leonard Leo, who's determined to turn their, quote, scriptural originalism, unquote, into law governing all Americans, whether they agree or not. Having succeeded in overturning Roe v. Wade, Christian nationalists want to roll back LGBTQ rights, same-sex marriage, sexual privacy, and even contraception, making America a conservative Christian version of Iran or Saudi Arabia. Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry wrote in Time, that's not hyperbole. Johnson has explicitly embraced the idea the U.S. was founded upon particular Christian principles and has denied that the founders called for a separation of church and state. 
Now, keep in mind that our new Speaker of the House is second in line to the presidency after Vice President Kamala Harris. Note, he worked tirelessly to overturn the 2020 election results on behalf of former President Trump, who enthusiastically backed him for Speaker. Johnson has blamed mass shootings on the teaching of evolution and said abortion providers should be imprisoned at hard labor. As an attorney for the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a Christian conservative group, he argued in favor of criminalizing gay sex and said that same-sex marriage is a dark harbinger of chaos and sexual anarchy that could doom even the strongest republic. Noted the New York Times, it is profoundly troubling that this extremist is now second in line to the presidency and will preside over the House as it votes to accept the 2024 election results. Holy cow. And finally, writing in the Daily Beast, David Rothkopf said, Johnson's election denialism is disturbing, but it's embrace of Christo-fascism that makes him truly dangerous. He said that the U.S. is not a democracy, but a biblical republic, and, like other fascists, appears intent upon imposing, by whatever means necessary, his views on the whole of society. The elevation of a Christian dominionist to House Speaker moves the nation closer to having precisely the kind of government America's founders most feared. Dang, what I say about this being a holiday show? I'm sorry, needed to be said. My advice, in general, would be to not quote Radio Parallax at Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow night. But otherwise, have at it, please. And I guess in the 60 seconds or so I have left, I'm going to try and lighten the mood a little bit by referring to another American character who is a lot less threatening than Donald Trump. I'm referring in this case to writer Fran Lebowitz. And I had a chance to see her speak uh, many years back, and she can be very amusing. Writing about her in Esquire, Sophie Verschbaugh said that Fran Lebowitz doesn't know what an influencer is. She has a sense of it, just like she has a general notion of what social media is or who the Kardashians are. But the iconoclastic New York writer and humorist lives outside the digital sphere. She lacks a smartphone or even an email address. Leibowitz 73 said, I only know about it because people tell me. People are, are always showing me things on their phones. I don't want to look at things on the phones, especially things about me. Noted Esquire, having dispensed decades worth of acerbic social commentary, Leibowitz might be considered something of an influencer herself. I do it, but I wouldn't say I influence people. I've been trying to tell people what to do my whole life, but nobody ever does what I say. If you really want people to do what you say, you should be a dictator. And dang, you arrived back at Trump again. Well, I tried. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and I look forward to talking to you again real soon. Enjoy your meal tomorrow night, unless you have pardoned your particular turkey. Our thanks to Guy and the good people who will continue to operate KDVS in Davis. Talk to you soon.